Final segment of the day, TM Lab. This is where our science journalist Mark Zastro is going to be unraveling intriguing stories from the world of science and technology. I'm just reading the script here. I guess that is <laughs> your role for us, Mark. Good to see you again. I guess so. Thanks for having me, Henry. Well, thanks for joining us. So this week's story, a uh, very uh, coronavirus heavy. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, approving remdesivir. A lot of excitement over that. And then the long-term prospects of a uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccine. So um, let's, let's first start with remdesivir. Uh, I think uh, now sure. people have had enough training to, to pronounce this with the emphasis on the, uh, the second syllable uh, right. to be I've accented. Yeah, so um, all, all that uh, hydroxychloroquine, which uh, we had to all kind of learn. how to pronounce uh, that. That seems to be by the wayside now. (laughs) This is supposedly very promising. Yeah, insofar as when it comes to treatments, it's one of the best best things we've seen so far. Uh, Obviously, there have been, as you say, so many different drugs tossed around as potential treatments. Uh, This one, remdesivir, is the first one to show promising results in a big clinical trial. So it was actually originally developed to treat Ebola, but it is an antiviral drug. And the results of this study uh, came out last week. It was done in the U.S. with uh, 1,000 patients. Mm-hmm. And this was a proper clinical trial with a test group and a control group. So they gave some of the people the drug, some of the people uh, placebo. And what they found is that the people getting the drug, on average, recovered four days sooner than uh, the, the people who had the placebo. So they were, they were recovering in 11 days as opposed to 15 days if you didn't have the drug. And that was a statistically significant result. Yeah, uh, st- statistically significant. But when you saw what, what happened with the recovery rates and all of that, it doesn't sound like this is some kind of miracle cure. Yeah, that's true. In fact, Like you you say, the study actually doesn't show that it improves patients' chances of Mm -hmm. survival. Mm -hmm. It just shortens the recovery time. So it is definitely not a miracle drug. It's not a cure. But even if all it does is shorten that time of recovery by four days, that means that people can get out of hospital sooner and free up some of those beds, some of those ventilators possibly. So that is a significant help. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration authorized the drug for emergency use to treat coronavirus patients in the U.S. So the drug's manufacturer now is ramping up production. This is going to become uh, basically a standard of care in the U.S. And it's important because it, it also shows that there is, in fact, something that can stop this virus or at least slow it mm-hmm. down when it comes to replicating inside its host. And hopefully that can improve with time. Anthony Fauci, the top U.S. government expert on infectious diseases, said that this actually kind of reminded him of the very first antiviral drugs that were developed to fight HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm. Because the first ones were not that effective, but they were a proof of concept. And then over time, they got better and better. Yeah, and, and Fauci kind of coming out in public and so forth really was a huge stamp of approval, I think, in the public perception of remdesivir. Very contrasting yes. to uh, Trump's hyping of hydroxychloroquine, where a lot of the scientists were just saying, well, you know, the, these are anecdotal results, and then we're, not, right. we're seeing some pretty severe side effects, and we've seen some tragic kind of uh, evidence of people who maybe just listening to the president kind of maybe going rogue and doing something that hasn't been safe. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and, but overall, the question still is, um, we're talking about existing drugs, seeing if they are ap- applicable to treating COVID-19. Why has it been so hard to develop a drug or find a drug to fight this disease? So I think we have to remember that humanity and you know, as a species, we're really new to dealing with, you know, not just this new coronavirus, but coronaviruses 
in general, because there was also no treatment ever found that worked for SARS or MERS either, right. you know, the other two big coronavirus outbreaks that we've lived through. And of course, thankfully, those diseases kind of burned themselves out, uh, even without us finding that treatment. But obviously, this virus looks to be you know, much more contagious and has spread around the world much, uh, much, uh, much faster. And you know, the fun- fundamentally, viruses are just kind of hard to kill in general. You know, yeah. it's, it's a lot easier to kill bacteria in our bodies with antibiotic drugs. Right? Right. That, that's, those are relatively common, but actually there really aren't that many antiviral drugs that we've ever discovered, that we've ever been able to manufacture. There are only about mm. 100 uh, that have been approved around the world. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've seen flu vaccines, and they have varying degrees of uh, efficacy and success depending on the flu season. Uh, you know, technically speaking, the common cold is a coronavirus. Some of it is, yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, Korea, uh, widely lauded for its approach to uh, COVID-19, generally speaking. Uh, what are the prospects of this drug coming into Korea? Uh, they so far the Korean CDC is sort of cautiously optimistic about the drug's prospects. They have noted that the U.S. FDA has approved this. Uh, actually, this drug is being trialed in three hospitals right now in South Korea on about 200 coronavirus patients. And the Korean CDC says that if it is effective in those trials, they are open to importing it. That's probably the uh, correct approach uh, to take, and uh, and the way that uh, Korea has been uh, going about uh, what they've been able to do uh, with uh, the resources that they have. So that's the treatment that we're talking about. Um, no uh, silver bullet there, but uh, treatments are one thing. Uh, the the real kind of uh, kind of magical. silver bullet, so to speak, that can uh, stop the virus in its track, at least in in a community setting where people can actually reopen the economy, would be an effective vaccine. And and there's a race all around the world, including here in Korea, to to get to first to market an effective vaccine. A lot of research is happening on that front. Uh, From what you've been able to gather, Mark, uh, where are we now? And uh, I know that everyone talking about uh, uh, 18-month, 24-month timeframes. How long will it take to get one? Well, so right now we are basically in the throw everything at the wall and see if it sticks phase. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there are, as you say, uh, so many people around the world, so many research groups and pharmaceutical companies around the world, literally over 100 different vaccines uh, in research or development at the moment. About a dozen of those are actually already in clinical trials, which is incredibly fast. fast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Normally, we'd be looking at a decade or even two or more Mm. to develop a vaccine and actually bring it to market. Obviously, we want one as soon as possible, like you said, 18 months if, if, if we could. But there are just so many things you have to do to get to that stage, right? Not just designing it and testing it, but then actually building the factories to manufacture it at scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, every new vaccine really is so different and unique and requires such precision to, to manufacture that usually you have to build brand new factories for each vaccine. Uh, and then actually making the vaccine can be very slow because typically you actually have to grow the virus that's used in that vaccine in chicken eggs and, and incubate it, and that right. takes time. And then you have to prove the quality of the manufactured vaccines, you know, make sure it passes muster. All of those steps can take years on their own, and we are trying to do that all in a single year or 18 months. So it's very ambitious. Uh, it's going to take a huge scale effort, and I think that's a very important point you're making is uh, every vaccine would uh, essentially need – its own factory to to be able to produce 
at scale. It's not like a car factory that says uh, we, we we make um, uh, Hyundai cars, but then we can kind of just reroute the assembly line a little bit and then make the, use the same chassis and then build a, a Kia right, car, right? Exactly. That, it's not going to work for, for vaccines. So one of the ways that scientists are saying that we could uh, maybe save some time is if we're able to develop a vaccine using messenger RNA, mRNA, I've heard it uh, termed, but uh, again, uh, for us lay people, what exactly does that mean and uh, how would that work? Right. So this is a a new experimental type of vaccine. Um, You know, in the traditional vaccine, uh, you would inject some inactivated virus, which you you have to grow in, in, you know, in those chicken eggs or what have you. And then that inactivated virus, when it uh, enters your body, it triggers your immune system and uh, causes your immune system to attack that, mm-hmm. that kind of virus, mm-hmm. right? But with a mRNA vaccine, you're actually not basing it off of grown copies of the virus. You're just using parts of the genetic code of the virus, the RNA. So the part, in this case, it would be the part of the genetic code uh, that's responsible for the spikes on the coronavirus. You know, a coronavirus looks very spiky, like a crown, uh, like it's wearing a crown under a microscope. So if you can actually produce a vaccine that tells your body, like your body's cells, uh, your muscle cells to actually produce those spikes itself, Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. you can trigger the immune system to do the exact same thing that a, a, a traditional vaccine would do, that differences is that genetic code can actually be synthesized and it can be manufactured directly. So it's way faster than having to wait for the virus to grow. Uh, So that could potentially allow us to scale up way, way, way faster. The Mm -hmm. problem is, of course, that we've never actually done this before. We've never made an mRNA vaccine before for humans. So it may work, it may not, but there are you know, among those hundred research groups that are tr- uh, trying to develop a vaccine, there are several that are trying this approach. And finally, what are some other ways we can uh, speed up the production of vaccines? Well, one of the problems with uh, trying to develop and test a vaccine is that the rate of in- if the rate of infections is going down, which is what we want, then it's hard to find subjects to test the vaccine mm, mm-hmm. on. If you want to know if a vaccine works, you actually want what nobody else wants, which is an outbreak. Yeah. So you can see uh, if it's pr- pr- uh, protecting people from being infected. Uh, if nobody is being infected, you don't know if it works. So right. one way to speed up trials is actually to infect people with the coronavirus deliberately. So you give some a vaccine, some a placebo, and then you expose them all to the coronavirus. This is definitely an ethically fraught strategy. It's not something anyone would do lightly. Some people, though, argue it would be worth it. You could, for instance, limit the participants to very young people, you know, very healthy, strong immune systems, should have a high rate of survival. And, you know, if those people are volunteering of their own free will to do this, uh, maybe this is uh, something we would consider. And maybe getting that vaccine out sooner could save thousands or millions of lives. All right. Well, we'll all think about that. Mark, as always, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Talk to you next week. Thanks for having me.